what were some of the biggest like ahas or what, what's some of the different things that you have done uh, that's made the biggest impact on your business? Well, I, I would say, you know, from a real estate entrepreneur's perspective, you have to recognize value, right? That's, that sounds very fundamental, but you have to know the difference between a good deal and a bad deal. Yeah. And when you're just getting started, if you get yourself into a bad deal, it can really handicap you. It's going to have a major impact on your ability to do it again. Sure. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for taking the time. If you're new here, I appreciate you tuning in and checking it out. If you have tuned in before and you're enjoying the show and you're getting a lot out of it, a rating and review in uh, in iTunes would be much appreciated. really helps me out. And uh, that would be super awesome if you do that. Guys, today I've got uh, someone on the show that I'm excited about. I think it's someone that a lot of you listening are going to really identify with and resonate with. Uh, he is someone that I've known for a while, and he's just got a great business. And uh, he built a seven-figure business while working full-time in a very demanding job. And I know a lot of us are in that position where we're working a day job, and uh, I did it for a long time. We're working a day job, and we're trying to build this business. And what does that look like, and how do you do it, and like how do you make it all work? and he's got a wife and kids and he has it all, right? All of us have these things and we sometimes use them as an excuse. So I wanted you guys to hear someone who's doing it successfully and, and get some idea of how that worked for him. So on the show today, I have William William Morgan, friend of mine. Uh, he's the owner and founder of Penny Lane Equity, a rapidly growing real estate flipping and wholesaling company in California's Central Coast. Will grew what was once a hobby into a thriving business with seven figures while also having a full-time job. Will has since cut the cord and now leads a team of 10 talented professionals as they provide some of the most attractive real estate opportunities found anywhere in the region. Once an adrenaline junkie, Will now tempers that thrill-seeking by sharing his love for surfing uh, the mountains and travel with his two young kids. So I'm excited to have a Will on the show today. Like I said, friend of mine, great guy, smart business guy, and he did it all with a full-time job. And I'm going to share that with you right now. So without any further ado, I give you Will Morgan. All right, Will, man. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Uh, I've known you for a while, and I know about your business at a high level, uh, but we've not really dove deeply into like your background. And there's definitely things about you that I didn't know until I started kind of looking in and and you sent me some fun facts and things. So we'll, we'll dive into all that fun stuff. But just so people get a sense of who you are and um, where, you know, what your background is, let's go back prior to real estate and kind of talk about what you were doing before you got involved in real estate. And then let's bridge that gap. Why, why real estate? How did that enter your life? Yeah. So, um, you know, before real estate, I was working in nuclear power and um, I actually started in that field when I was 18 years old and uh, I would work uh, short contract work. They're called outages. I would work those um, and then I would take the money I earned and, and go traveling and surfing until the money ran out. And I did that for like 
10 years. It was a great, great lifestyle of <laughs> someone in their, their 20s. That sounds awesome. Yeah. But I had to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I ended up taking a full-time job. And, um, you know, I, I worked, again, in the nuclear industry in as a full-time employee um, in my 30s. Okay. So you're in nuclear energy. What did you do in there? And it, can you talk about it or is it, is it like? Yeah, no, no. I was, uh, I was, I have a background in radiation protection, but when I went to a, a full-time job, I went into nuclear operations. That's the department that runs the reactors. Okay. So, uh, I spent about six years in that. And then I rolled back into radiation protection and chemistry, um, mainly just because of scheduling reasons. So I, I have a pretty broad based understanding of, of, you know, how things work there. So. Sure. Okay. Did you, by chance, this is a little off subject, but did you see that short, like, docu-series or whatever, or not docu-series, like a little series called Chernobyl? Did you see that yeah. a couple years Absolutely. ago? Did you watch yeah. it? I did, you know, and I had to study, well, I didn't have to, but I did study the, what was called the notebook from Chernobyl, uh, which was uh, some of the testimonials and like that. And it was, uh, for the most part, it, that was, that was very true to fact. Most uh, movie renditions of nuclear accidents and things like that are way off, but that yeah. was surprisingly. Uh, that was that was absolutely crazy. I mean, it wasn't helped by the fact that there was so much cover up and denial, and you sure. know, just just denial. I guess is probably the best way to say it, but unbelievable. Okay, um, that's a little bit of a tangent. So you're in this, you're in this, uh, the nuclear power industry. Um, right. I, I assume, and maybe this is a poor assumption on my part, but. Um, I assume uh, income was decent, like you weren't hurting. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what, why real estate? How did that even hit your radar? Because uh, I'm assuming you were busy and it was a lot going on. You had a lot of responsibility. Right. How did that even hit your radar? Why? Why were you thinking you about know, doing something? I came to, uh, you know, to California and uh, for a full-time job. And where I'm at, it's on the central coast. So houses are not cheap. Yeah. And buying a house is a, is a tremendous investment. And it's one, you, I mean, it's very difficult to, to get a house. So I remember getting that first house. Um, I got a, a neighbor of mine, bought it at an auction, at a, a sheriff's auction. And I had seen some of his work. I, I you know, he was going to fix it up and uh, sell it. And he told me what he was going to sell it for. And uh, I knew his work. So I told him right there and then, oh, I'd like to buy it. You know, we can okay. sell on real estate commissions. And so anyways, that, that intrigued me, like, how, you know, how did he do that? And, and then of course, watching the process of him putting this house back together, what was almost a teardown into a fantastic house. I mean, essentially brand new and it was just very intriguing, you know, and, and I wanted to know more about it and do some of that myself. So that launched me down that path. Okay. So what was the first property then? Like you, you had this, this experience and, and it was like, Hey, that's pretty cool. What's your first move? Like, what do you do? Do you start looking on the MLS? And what year was this, by the way? How long ago are we talking? Uh, this is around 2003, 2005. Okay. Well, okay. Yeah, 2003 is when I bought my primary residence. And then I'd say 2004 is when I bought my first investment property. Okay. And how did that work? How'd you find it? How'd you finance it? How'd that all go down? Well, you know, I I did a lot of research on like, how do you find investment properties? It, it was it was like magic. How do you find <laughs> a property at a significant discount? I would hear people talking about it and I just didn't believe it, but I read more and more and I tried certain things. So yep. I, I remember putting um, different newspaper ads for, you know, basically I'd, I'd, I'd buy a fix by fixers, you know, and I would get phone calls and 
I would start traveling to properties and talking with people. And, and, you know, you can kind of just start to see the different pieces coming into place. And yep. sure enough, I, I found one and um, I ended up buying it. And, and I, you know, used conventional financing. I had enough for a down payment and, okay. and just went down that route so what kind of a so what was the the plan with that house was it a flip was it a buy and hold like what were you going to do with it it was a fix and flip fix and flip exactly what, we, what i did and uh you know the fellow who i i learned from and i bought my house from he was really a mentor for me and he helped me avoid a lot of you know amateur mistakes so you know he he was glad to share his experience with me and uh he helped me you know, make a plan and fix it and bring it to market. And, and nice. sell it. it was a great first so experience. So you put the down payment down, you did traditional financing. I'm assuming you funded the rehab yourself then out of your own funds. Yeah, okay. all myself, which is very difficult. So, you know, with that first house I bought in 2003, if you recall that the, the um, home values were going up, they just every month yeah. they were going up. So yeah. I, I had a home equity line of credit that I was able to draw from okay. to, to do the deal. So, yeah. Um, that's it's funny. Back then, I remember um, locally because that's when I first started getting interested in real estate, like 2003. And I remember there was people actually had a strategy of buying a house, holding on to it for eight months, and then just selling it for a ten thousand dollar profit. Like that yeah. was a strategy back then. Like just hold on to it and let it appreciate, you know, which didn't work out well for them when a few years down the road but but that was a that was a full on on strategy i remember and i do remember too back then it being a lot a little bit of a mystery like how to find deals and i don't know in my market i didn't have a, a mentor that was like open it, it was very tight-lipped and people acted like they had like this you know golden goose if they knew how to do anything it was very hard to get information from people uh but i do remember that and i spent i spent a couple of years kind of just sitting on the sidelines waiting and trying to figure things out so you did that first deal it was a flip you financed it through a bank or a mortgage company and then you you finance the funding uh or the the flip part of it how did that one turn out? What what were the basic numbers? How like high level numbers? They don't have to be exact, but just how did that kind of like work out for you? You know, it's funny. I remember being surprised. Uh, so I believe it was on the order, but bought it for right around three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and I sold it for four hundred twenty five thousand dollars. So there was a seventy five thousand dollars spread. And, you know, in my naive mind, I was thinking I would capture most of that. But yeah, the bookkeeper. You know, when she read back the numbers, I'm like, I don't know, it was, it was like, you know, like thirteen thousand dollars. I'm like, how can that be? Yeah. But- yeah. It was good training and it was a good learning experience. Yeah, totally. I, you know, it just not to make you feel too bad, but my, so I told you like 2003 is when I first like maybe real estate something. And I started listening to like, not podcasts, but there was like online, people had like websites with like audio that they talked about it and reading success sure. stories and all that. I didn't really buy my first house until 2008. So there was a few years in there. There was some personal stuff going on that kind of held me back. But um, ultimately, the first house I bought as a, as a flip, I bought it for $40,000. By the way, this was not a trashed house. It was a three-bedroom, thousand-foot brick ranch in a blue-collar, solid neighborhood. Bought it for $40,000, ended up sending it, selling it for like eighty dollars or something, and made a little bit of money in between. But you're right. It's funny when you're first starting. It's like, well, I bought it for forty. If I sell for eighty, I'll make forty thousand dollars. Like, wait, hold on. Pull out renovation. Pull out holding costs. You know, all this stuff and and uh, realtors and all this. Um, 
you're right though. That sound those big numbers, like seventy five thousand dollars. Like, how does that end up being thirteen? But it does, right? So that's like a cautionary tale. If you're in one of those markets where all of the costs are really high, the cost of purchase is high, and you sell high, make sure you understand some of those basic numbers because we even get sometimes here and there. My team here locally in Michigan, they'll get tripped up because we're used to buying houses that are in like we buy them for like. 50 to 100,000 and we sell them for like 125 to 200. Like that's sort of the ballpark of like a straight base hit kind of a deal for us. But when we do come across an opportunity that's like, well, we can buy it for 350 and sell it for 450, my team all like lights up. And then we start, you know, we have like some basic calculators. We made some spreadsheets and we just put in the basic numbers like, wait a minute, we're only going to make eight grand. Like, how is that possible? You know, it's like, well, you know, when you take all the numbers into account and holding costs and all, you know, realtors, first of all, it's like 6%, like $6,000 on every hundred thousand. So it starts adding up. And, and I've had my team come to me and go, this is a good one, right? You want to take a look at it? And I'll like, I'll just put it in a basic calculator and go, that's not that great. Like if we're off at all, like we're in trouble, we can't do that. And it's deceptive when you get into those kind of numbers, people, don't always understand all the costs associated with flipping a house. Okay. So you flipped that first house. It went well. Um, what now did you, did, have you, have you had breaks in your, in your game or in your business since 2003? Have you like kind of got in and out of real estate or has it just been steady all the way through? No. So I, um, I approached it as a hobby, you know, I had a full-time job and you know, there were a lot of people I worked with who would, you know, accumulate rentals and I would pick up one, one, maybe two properties a year. And mm-hmm. I, you know, that was fine and manageable. I could fit it in in my spare time. And, uh, you know, it wasn't unusual at all. So that's kind of what I did Yeah. Uh, for a while. Uh, and, you know, I was in investing a lot back then in, in you know, stocks and options and futures and, and the different, I was just very much a study of, of, investors and investor psychology and like that. So when I saw what was happening, you know, I was listening to the voices that were out there telling us that, you know, the market then was overbought. And I actually looked into quite a bit how much real estate was part of the problem. Yeah. And so then I sold all my rental properties. I only had five. Okay. And, um, and I actually sold the house I lived in as well. Okay. What, what year and was this? What year did you do this? That was 2007, at, right as it was starting to... Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah, thank goodness. I like to call myself a genius, but there was definitely some luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, some people kind of make their own luck, too, they, by, by being on top of things and, and having their ear to the ground. So um, very smart. So that was... Okay. So but it was that, a hobby, though. You know? Yeah. Was, well... Yeah. And I know that it's it's a hobby. And I know, like, just from knowing you, you build a substantial business with a full time job. Like, yes. you, you took what you knew and what you had, were good at in your day job, which was systems and processes. Right, the nuclear power industry is highly process driven, and they have to be right. They have to follow procedures. And you took that into your business. So tell me, especially in the early days, let's let's go back because like a lot of people listening don't have this scaled up team and scaled up business. They're kind of starting out. And I, I would assume you kind of probably did this from the beginning. And if you didn't, most people who don't have systems and processes early on sort of wish they had. So how did it look for you though early on? Were you a systems guy right from the start? And, and what do you think about that? Um, I wasn't at it, at the beginning, but you know, kind of like that one example where you know we had a $75,000 spread, but we only made $13,000. How can that be? And you know, if I just decided a little bit differently, that could have been a loss. So I, yeah. I you know, having having the the kind of the reinforcement, the background of, of that 
career and, and their emphasis on it, uh, that's naturally where I migrated to to kind of uh, help me make decisions going forward. That was one thing. And, you know, after things settled down, I started getting back into real estate around 2012. But this time I decided I want to make it a business. Yeah. And so that's when I that's when I really wanted to document my uh, work processes. And it was out of necessity. Mm. If you have a, a full time job and this job sometimes is, is very, uh, you know, it requires all of your attention. Yeah. Uh, and you want to do real estate at scale, you're you're going to need help. Yeah. And those people are going to need, you know, to understand rules and, um, you know, have guidance and things that can help you. So systems and processes were a way for me to communicate with my team without being there. And that was very impactful. It, it helped us, uh, you know, create a regular sort of way of doing things. So how did you, what you work full-time job and I know a lot of folks start off for sure with a full-time job and frankly, some people don't hate their jobs. So it's not a matter of trying to get out of their, uh, of their career. It's just, they, they want to do this also. What is the biggest challenge that you faced early on? And then maybe even nowadays, like what are some of those challenges that you face being a full-time employee and also running a business that is scaling up? Okay. So, you know, time is is probably the biggest challenge if you're going to scale up a business you're going to do so in what spare time you have available so you know you're going to have um you know time that you normally watch tv time that you know your family would like to be with you too you know it's gonna it's gonna encroach on every little aspect of that so you have to make room in your life to scale a business you know if it if it means waking up early wake up early. If it means not watching TV for two or three hours a night, don't, you know, don't watch TV. If that's, if you want a business, you have to make sacrifices like that. Yeah. Okay. Time is the biggest disadvantage. Um, Sure. What are, what are some of the tools that you use to manage your, your team? Cause you're not there all day. Like I, I assume there's questions and, and challenges and problems that come up during the day and you have a, you have a, a scaled up team a little bit now too, but in the earlier days, how did you handle when something came up in the middle of your day? Like, did you just have to do lunchtime or how, how do you, how do you manage that kind of stuff? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, first off I found that it was, you know, because I had a full-time job, I didn't have to draw a salary off my real estate business. Right. So that freed up, income to hire someone. So I could hire someone earlier than I might have if I was. What was your first hire? Who'd you hire first? Uh, My first hire was um, a gal. Her name was Julie. Uh, Is uh, is she still with my business today? She had a great hire. Wonderful, wonderful hire. Um, She has an MBA. I I don't know how I landed her, but I did. She believed in my vision. And she and I uh, were, you know, fused at the hip for a while. Uh, we would wake up. She was she was an early riser, so we were on the phone and uh, you know communicating at five in the morning uh, until I went to work at six thirty, and then maybe I would um, you know contact her on a break or a lunch break, and um, in the meantime she had our processes to help you know sort of guide her where to go. And, and within three months, I would say she was very very effective on her own. What did she do for you initially? What was her function exactly, or just was it just like? You're kind of like my right hand, just do everything. Or how did yeah, you handle I that? As an executive assistant. Okay. Okay. So essentially, she was uh, she was going to be me 
when I couldn't be there. So, so she was basically my person in the field, my, um, you know, handle sort of issues that came up. She, yeah. you know, she was ba- basically my right hand person. Wow. Okay. So you hired her. She kind of came on MBA, smart lady, really, really good. Uh, is she, is she similar to you personality wise in that? Like, I, I assume you're kind of a detailed person. Maybe I, I'm, maybe that's a bad assumption, but did she kind of have the same strengths you had or did she have complementary strengths to you? She, she had similar strengths to me. So, um, you know, I'm detail oriented when I want to be, okay. I would rather, I'd much rather, uh, I'd rather be on the phone with someone interacting with someone making okay. a deal. You know, okay. and, but I have rules and processes that I can fall back on to kind of keep me in line. And she's the same way. So okay. Okay. It was a good match from that point of view, but uh, it is helpful to have something, someone that is even more detail sure. oriented and methodical and like that on your team. Yeah, definitely. So you brought her in, you're working full time. She comes in about three months in, she's pretty good. Um, was it just you and her for a while or did you continue to hire people like right after she kind of got her feet under her? Yeah, it was me and her for a while, and um, then we hired, uh, let's see, our second hire, um, Stacy. Yeah, so we had our transaction coordinator. She was that detailed person Yeah, who kept us on track, and uh, boy, she's really good. She's better than both Jules and I are as far as making sure things are on track. And I assume so, she's still there? Yes, she's okay. still there. Okay, yeah. yeah. I only said it because you sound like you were talking about her in the present tense. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, the, the, honestly, that was the first person I hired was a transaction person because I am abysmal with details. Horrible, horrible. Um, and I knew it. And so I was holding us back. So I, that was one of the first people I hired as a transaction person. And I, I, it was, she was great. I, it's kind of another story in itself, but I burned her out a little bit because she was the first hire. I expected her to have the same like motor and like work, not work ethic. That's not fair. She had a great work ethic, but like be as motivated as I was to work all the time. Right. And it's like, you can never expect people who work you know, for you as an employee to have the exact same level of, you know, dedication that you have, they're incentivized differently. If the company becomes a $10 million company, they don't really share in that like you do necessarily. So anyways, I learned my lesson there, kind of burned her out. So you, okay. So it sounds like you kept sort of building that team responsibly. What kind of systems and processes were you implementing to kind of, you know, I know that right now you have a very scaled up um, playbook and you you have your process and systems like videos and, and, and written out like you, you're very, it sounds like very tight in it when it comes to that. How did, how did you start that? Was it just like Google Docs or like what was the what was the beginnings of that whole process mapping? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great free tools out there. And and the whole, you know, the whole concept is to learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Right. You don't want to repeat, you know, the first mistake's fine. If you make a mistake twice, well, you know. That's your that's your own fault. But uh, yeah, I used um, basically Google Docs, uh, spreadsheets. Um, we used Trello, which is a sort of a yep. you know. A, it's like a card base. I use Trello actually uh, for the, for this for the podcast. Like my oh, team, great. we use Trello to kind of move the. You know, it's like a for people who don't know, it's just very visual, very graphical, and you just sort of move these cards along a path of however you name the path, right? Like doing, done, you know, issue, whatever. Like you can just kind of move things along graphically how they're moving through your through your company. So, so you use yeah. Trello for your real estate business. That's cool. Right. Yeah. And then so you know again the idea was to learn from your mistakes and improve. Yeah. And when you when you hear some something that someone else is doing and you're like, wow, that's 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 a great 
way to do that. Yeah. It, you don't record it. You're going to forget it in, you know, a couple months. Totally. You'll, you know, you'll, you won't improve. So um, I remember my first two procedures were planning a rehab and executing a rehab. And both of those things had a dramatic effect on how our rehabs were done, how long they took, how much we spent, yeah. you know? So, uh, I remember just on, in the planning or rehab, you know, we would do that while we were in escrow. Yeah. Um, and, and our time to start would, would be on day one, you know, it's, it's somewhat embarrassing, but there's a lot of times where we've in the beginning, we bought a property and there were no hammers swinging for two or three weeks, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's just money down the drain. So totally. Yep. Yeah, you're totally right. So, um, so you started that planning process back then. What what are some of the struggles? Any any like as far as your team goes? And I know I've I've hired and and unfortunately had to fire a lot of people. Um, and some of it was because they had a hard time following procedures. What, did you ever have that experience, or did you t- any pushback from the team? Yes. Yeah. So we had we've had a number of hires as well. You know, and and um, you know it's a, they have to be a core value fit. I yeah. Think. Oh, yeah. we, we all want that. Our team is just fantastic right now. And, um, we all want to be the best at what we're doing. You know, yeah. money is, yeah. is an incentive, but we want to be the best at what we're doing. And, um, so if you have that mindset, you're, you, you know, you're going to follow reminders, you know, you're not just going to uh, shoot from the hip, yeah. you know, and we found people that, you know, had their own ways of doing things and, and they just wanted to do it that way. And, and, you know, so we had to part ways and, and often yep. it was very friendly, you know, parting, but, sure. uh, yep. you know, if you want to do something well, you have to have rules to guide you. Otherwise, you know, you're just, you're uh, just winging it. Yeah. You're kind of making it up as you go along. So in the, in the course of this, this time that you, since you started and you've sort of, it sounds like you've sort of kind of organically, responsibly, methodically built your team and your company. What were some of the biggest like ahas or what, what's some of the different things that you have done uh, that's made the biggest impact on your business? Well, I, I would say, you know, from a real estate entrepreneur's perspective, you have to recognize value, right? That's, that sounds very fundamental, but you have to know the difference between a good deal and a bad deal. Yeah. And when you're just getting started, if you get yourself into a bad deal, it can really handicap you. It's going to have a major impact on your ability to do it again. Sure. So it's very important to understand value, to understand, you know, what you're getting into and um, when not to buy, you know? Yeah. So I always tell people like, you know, especially when you're running your numbers, the number at the top, is pretty important, probably the most important, because everything cascades from that. So in other words, if you're figuring out your ARV after a pair value and you're off, you know, by a mile, like every other number can be spot on from that point forward, and you're still potentially in trouble if you've went the wrong direction with your number. Um, so I agree with you, you know, and there's like this, I think there's a happy medium too, because some people get overly simplistic and their numbers are bad just because they're generalizing or they're just sort of like guessing or whatever. And then there's some people who like have that engineer brain and they want to create this spreadsheet that could like launch the space shuttle. And it's like, nah, you know, that's probably overkill. There's a, there's somewhere in between there. And I think I'm a big fan of 80, 20. I'm a big fan of like sorting through uh, in getting in and pulling out the 20 best and then really dialing in on those. And I think, you know, this is me and I'm, I'm definitely, um, I, I have a lot of risk tolerance, but and even my daughter, like a, about a year and a half ago, she 
came to me and wanted to flip houses and, and, and I was kind of helping her with that. And she had a hard time. And I think a lot of people do with the concept of making a lot of offers and, and yeah. not spending an hour on every single offer, like come close, yeah. get in the ballpark, make an offer. If it gets countered or accepted, now let's dial in a little bit and see where we are exactly. Right. People get a little bit too caught up. It's like, well, how many offers? Well, I only made two this week because I spent all day for two days, like trying to figure out what to offer. And it's like, you're way overthinking it. Make the, make the offer, and then you know you've got some time to figure out if you need to dial that in. So, how did you do it? Like, how did you? How do you do it now? Let's just forget what you used to do. What do you do now? Like, how does your team know what a good deal is? Is there one person in charge of sort of doing that? Or are you still involved with with running numbers on deals where you're going to make offers? Or what's that look? How does it, what's the offer process look like in your company? Okay, so uh, you know we have we have different calculators that we've built. Um, so it, we basically, we divide the process up between what happens prior to a contract and what happens during a contract or during escrow. Okay. So prior to a contract, we can be a little bit looser, but, uh, we use different, there's all sorts of valuation models that, that will help us determine what is the highest retail value or ARV. Mm-hmm. What is the ARV? That is not too difficult to find out. We have internal sort of guides that help us with repairs. They can be as simple as uh, a light renovation is $25 a square foot. A medium is 35. A somewhat heavy can be 45 and on up. Mm-hmm. So with those sort of, um, you know, blunt tools, we can, you know, um, make an offer on a property. Right. And then if that offer is accepted, well, then we can drill in deeper and yep. make sure that we're getting a good deal. So that's, that's basically how it works now. We're a little bit loose in the beginning. Yep. We drill down uh, once we're in Totally. Contract. It's exactly what we do. Exactly what we do. Um, so are you, are you finding off market deals? Like, are you marketing for deals or how are you finding your deals? Where are they coming from? Yeah, they're almost all off market. We do get some referrals, you know, yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we buy a very specialized, uh, leads list and we have, um, you know, stacked marketing is what I, what I call it. So we hit that list with different marketing, um, yeah. direct mail, rings voicemail. We have cold callers. Um, you know, we also have PPC and SEO and, and we use Facebook to some degree. So, so okay. we're trying, you know, we, we have a list and we have some other outbound, uh, sure marketing as well. So. Do you know, I know you do, but offhand, do you know which one's working best for you right now? What, what's the most effective uh, marketing channel that you have? Uh, it's a, it's, it's a toss up between um, pay-per-click, you know, so online marketing yep. and direct mail. Those are still, the, okay. those are still providing the most deals. They're, they're getting expensive though. Yeah. And we're looking at other ways. So cold calling is, is something that's, taking on new emphasis. And I believe I, I could see cold calling being the, the best lead channel we have in six months. Okay. That's awesome. Um, so as we record this, we're still kind of in, in the, in the grasp of the, of the uh, coronavirus. How, how is that looking for your company? What's, what's the impact, if any, that it's having on your company right now? Well, uh, it, it's interesting when when things. Uh, I was fairly, con- I was concerned fairly early. We went on a um, mastermind cruise, yep. seven figure living, yep. and I was nervous on that cruise to even go. <laughs> I don't know if I told you that. No. I didn't even want to go at that early stage. Yeah. So uh, I came out pretty early with um, some some things we were starting to do differently shortly after that time period in mid February. Uh, there was a period of time in California where. Uh, you know, the governor had orders where you couldn't show houses. 
Mm-hmm. So if, if we're going to buy and fix a house and, and bring it to market, or if we're wholesaling that house, you know, our, our investors are going to have the same sort of process. Sure. Can you even sell it? That right. was the question we were asking ourselves. Do we even have a market here? Do we have a broken market? <laughs> yeah. And so we kind of, you know, for two weeks there, we, we put, I'd say three weeks, we put everything on pause. And uh, our deals were still working their way through escrow, which was good. I wasn't sure that they would, but yeah. they all ended up, you know, uh, the ones that we had in the pipeline ended up selling. So uh, things started to ease up and we've uh, basically gone in heavily back into marketing. And okay. We're off to the races. Yeah, we, we had a um, Michigan got hit pretty hard. We uh, we slowed down significantly on direct mail. PPC is probably our number one lead source right now. A lot of people sitting at home, I think, on Google <laughs> typing in sell my house fast because, you know, maybe they lost their job or they're on, you know, laid off and don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, PPC has been working for us a lot. We're doing some text and some ringless voicemail uh, as well. We're going to get back and, and kind of pump up the direct mail a little bit soon. So, yeah, it just had a little bit of a – it caused us to pause for a minute on direct mail as well. But, you know, I, I really think, you know – I believe that when when things loosen up a little bit in terms of stay-at-home orders and things like that across the country, um, I think there's going to be a little bit of a uh, like the, there's going to be a little bit of a rush. There's going to be some demand because there's people who have been pent up, they've been held back. Whether it be the homeowner who who needs to buy a house or sell a house or whatever it is, like everything's sort of artificially been held back. And then, you know, you have the people who normally would have been buying and selling in this time anyway. So I really believe there'll be a little bit of like a a rush and like a lot of people selling and buying houses in the next few months. Long-term effect, I don't know. Like none of us know what's going to happen in terms of like going back to work and all the stuff that's going on. But yeah, man, I I think that uh, lead gen right now is huge. and, And I think you know, that's the kind of stuff people I, I right now are wondering, how am I how am I finding leads in this environment? Like, what's the most effective way? And, you know, you're finding you're in California, uh, PPC and direct mail is still working pretty well for you. So and, and you got a lot of different uh, fishing poles, so to speak, out there. Like, you're not I don't think it's I think it's kind of nuts. And personally, for people to pick one channel and just say, I'm just going to do that. Because right. sometimes it's not, you know, it can stop working, or it can have this like ebb and flow of effectiveness. So I always tell people you don't have to do 10 things for sure but you should be doing two or three things just you know hedging your bet a little bit and making sure you're diversified there um awesome so let's talk a, a little bit about what you're trying to do going forward what it, what are your goals where are you trying to go with your business what does it look like to you in in a couple of years yeah so you know our goal as a company is to be the the source in our area and our area is fairly big we're, we're in five counties so <clears throat> Uh, we want to be the source for distressed properties. Okay. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll flip some of those. We will wholesale some of those to to our investors. But we want to be the source. We want to control the, where the deals come from. Because, you know, just kind of like my, you know, my impression before I started was, wow, that's magic. How do you find a deal? Yeah. At, at, at a significant discount, um, you know, and, and be able to buy it for and, and fix it for a profit. Well, that is still magic. And that's what we're good at. So we're going to, we're going to be the source of that. We're going to control that market, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you mentioned briefly the, that we went on a cruise, by the way, that cruise before we went on it, my, my mother was, was warning me like, there's this virus, like coronavirus, like you, you sure you should go? And my response was what it always is to my mom, who's a worry ward is, um, it's, it's fine. It's, 
Come on. Like, what are you talking about? Right. And then I get back and like a couple weeks later, you know, everything kind of really blows up here in the United States. She's like, see, you thought I was crazy. Um, But you mentioned the seven figure flipping group. uh, I talk about it on the show from time to time, but, and uh, that's how we met, obviously. Um, What are your, what are your thoughts on not necessarily seven figure flipping, but we can talk specifically about that, but just a mastermind, being in a mastermind, surrounding yourself with people. What, what did that do for you in your business? Well, um, I'll start by saying I've always been very skeptical. I've never, I've never paid for training, uh, only because I, I sensed there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, not, not so reputable, yeah. um, yeah. mentors out there. So I was always resistant to it, but, uh, you know, se- seven figure flipping, I, I found that, um, everyone in there is genuine. Everybody in there is walking the walk and talking the talk. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and to have access to, people who are running other successful businesses at the level that you want to be and be able to talk to them, pick up the phone, you know, text message, whatever yeah. is invaluable. So, you know, basically what it does is it takes 10 or 15 years of trial and error and expensive mistakes and compresses that down to, you know, you're, you're looking like a professional company in a very short period of time when you have that uh, influence around you. Yeah. When it comes to real estate where, Let's face it. Let's be honest here. Mistakes can be really costly, right? We're talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, you know, assets that we're kind of moving around. Um, a mistake can be can be devastating. And like you mentioned in the beginning, they can just ruin it. Like I always tell people, I, I say this all the time, probably too much, but if that first deal I did wasn't profitable, I, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And it's not necessarily because I would have wanted to give up, but my wife is half of the equation. And, and I know she would have not been a down with it anymore if we would have lost money. So, you know, it, it makes a difference um, bypassing the learning curve a little bit, or at least minimizing the learning curve. There's always going to be bumps in the road. But, you know, I, I sat with Andy uh, when I first started, Andy McFarlane, and he kind of laid out his business and, and kind of told me what he did right and wrong, just honestly. And the amount of money that I, I saved by not making the same mistakes he already made for me, basically, like it's invaluable. You can't even, it's almost, you can't even calculate the amount of money that is saved by not making the same mistakes that other people are freely telling you they made. So you don't have to make them, you know? Yes. It's invaluable. Invaluable. I could, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be doing uh, business at the level that we're doing it now without it. Yeah. It is, it's, it is buying speed and it's certainly buying uh, hindsight. You know what I mean? People always say hindsight's twenty twenty. If I knew now what I, if I knew then what I know now, well, what if you could know then what you know now? You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what you're doing. You're buying hindsight, which whew, can you imagine if you could buy hindsight in every aspect of your life, how great that would be. <laughs> right. And, and you know what? It's, it's, uh, it's, you can't find it everywhere. It's almost like shopping around for a deal when you yeah. shop around for, for, uh, you know, mentors and, yeah. uh, mastermind. So I feel grateful that I, I found the right one and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have paid for training or mentoring any other way in, yeah. unless it's legitimate. And, uh, well, your instincts were right when you, when you were skeptical, there are a lot of 
people out there that are less than honest, less than ethical. It just in any industry, it's like that, right? So, um, but but it but it was a difference maker for me too. If any, you know, I, I talk about it a lot. I don't always tell you how to find out more information, so I, I will take this time to do that. If you're interested in learning more about the mastermind that we're talking about, you can go to the show notes for this show, uh, and there'll be a link. Or if you happen to be sitting in front of a computer and you go, just give it to me now. It's uh, Seven Figure Flipping. Just go to sevenfigureflipping.com, seven, the number seven, not not the word, but the number seven, figureflipping.com, and um, and just inquire. There's things there where you can you can reach out and be and have someone contact you. So uh, it's not for everybody, you know, but I think for a lot of people, it, it's it's huge and it makes all the difference in the world. So um, I know that you are. I, I I didn't know this really, honestly, until uh, I started doing my research, and you provided some information about yourself personally. That you are or were an adrenaline junkie. You like yes. <laughs> you like you like those thrills, um, like bungee jumping and all that. Like I yeah. I always tell people, like, there's you'll never get me to bungee jump. I just won't do it. I, I can't imagine doing something where there's yes. even a chance I'll kill myself. If, unless there's a gun to my head, you know what I mean? Like you'd have to have a gun to my back to get me to jump off of some uh, bridge with a rubber band strapped to me. It's just never going to happen. Right. I feel the same about skydiving. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I, I, although, interestingly enough, I do like taking risk in business. Like I do get a thrill from that. Uh, yeah. But physical, physical danger is not my thing. Um, but how, how have you always been that way? Have you, since a kid, you just yeah, like to I do have, stuff? I don't, yeah, when I, I grew up around horses, I used to do team roping. We used to, we used to do all, all sorts of crazy stuff for fun on horses. We used to play tag and, you know. Really? I don't know. Was, yeah, we played polo with golf clubs. and. Oh, that's hilarious. That's <laughs> so awesome. I don't know. We, yeah, I, I, I don't know why, but I, I've always had a, a thrill seeking. Sort of. Now, you have kids. Are they, uh, let's see, two young boys or girls? Uh, one of each. One of uh, each. Seven and twelve. Adrenaline junkies, thrill seekers. I hope not. Uh, boy, my young boy, he's uh, he's he's looking like he's fit in that mold. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. He loves skateboarding, and uh, he's going to be just like me. I have <laughs> it's not all bad. No, not, not so much. That's she's, not all bad. She's a little bit tempered, so that's good. That's funny. I've got I've got two girls and a boy, and my least uh, my least uh, thrill seeking kid is my boy. Uh, the one that is the most of a adrenaline junkie is my my youngest daughter. She's just she was a kid when she was eighteen. For her birthday, she wanted to jump out of a plane. Like that's what she wanted to do on her eighteenth birthday. So, um, right. yeah, she's she's all about it, man. She's she loves the she loves the uh, the thrill. So, yeah, I don't know if that's good. Probably not. As a dad, I go, no, that's not good. I don't want my kids jumping out of planes. And she wants yeah. to bungee jump. Like she's just all about it. So, it's so funny. You know, when you're when you are a dad, you you look at things from <laughs> angle like i my passion is surfing yeah and but i but i think myself boy i used to like and i still do like to surf fairly sizable waves yeah and yet i want to teach my son how to surf so i'm like oh boy i don't know oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well the, the good news is they're going to do it if they want to do it so you might as well tell yeah. them how to do it right <laughs> um Awesome, man. Well, listen, this has been fun. I, I really like learning more about you and your business. It's it's cool. Yeah. Um, I asked you specifically to be on because I know you're doing some cool stuff in your business, and I think it's fun to share that with people. And I think getting that, um, you know, the fact that you're doing it w with a full time job and and that that's something, man, because that's probably one of the biggest excuses. You mentioned time being the biggest challenge. 
And I think that that becomes a, the very, for people who really want to do this, but they go, well, you know, I'll, maybe I'll quit my job. And it's like, you know, you don't have to quit your job. You can do this if you're disciplined and have, you know, systems and processes and you, you sort of are, you're thoughtful about it. You can do this without quitting your job. And if you love your job, it, it's not a, you don't have to make that decision. You can continue to work the job that you love um, and do this on the side. And by the way, on the side can be a huge seven-figure business, right? It doesn't have to be a, a hobby or something you do kind of poorly in your spare time. Like it can, you can scale it up, but it just takes a little discipline, right? We know folks in the group, seven-figure group that are working full-time, have great businesses. Um, Bill Allen did it for a while. I did it for a while. Um, I'm not full-time anymore. I'm, I'm full, I mean, uh, I don't work uh, a full-time job anymore. I'm right. in my business full-time. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good distinction to make. You 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 are full time in your business now, but um, you were doing it while you were working, right? It can be done. So uh, let's not use that as an excuse. Um, yeah. So uh, I know you're not necessarily promoting anything, but guys, listen. I, I've I, I'll, I'll vouch for for Will. I've known him for a long time now. I know what he's about. I know what his his integrity level is, and and how hard he works, and how good of a business he runs. If you are interested in reaching out. To, to Will and just seeing how you get involved, maybe from a investor standpoint or just capital, uh, and you want to reach out to him and, and just explore what that might look like, uh, you can reach out to him if you want to give your email address or some way to contact you that, that makes sense. Well, how would they do that? Sure. So our company name is Penny Lane Equity, and my email address is William at PennyLaneEquity.com. And, you know, we cover all of Central California and specifically the coast. So we're in some fairly attractive markets. Yeah. Sure. Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo County. So nice. Awesome. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. So if you d didn't get that or you're driving or whatever, um, you can just go to the show notes and we will have all that there for you. Uh, Will, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. You're running a business and uh, you've got a lot going on. You've got a family. So thanks for taking the time and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks All right. Yep. No problem. Thank you. All right, guys. That was a lot of fun. I enjoy talking to Will. He's a good dude, smart guy, uh, obviously knows what he's doing. He started his business and grew it to seven figures while working full time in the nuclear power industry. I don't think that that was any easy thing to do, but it's certainly doable. And that's the point. You can do it. It's doable. He had a family, has a family. He had a job. He had responsibilities, he had hobbies and things that he wanted to do, but you heard him. Sometimes you have to sacrifice watching TV, sometimes you have to sacrifice a little bit of sleep, get up early, stay up late, so that you can be there for your family and you can build that business, but it's all doable, guys. I saw him do it with my own eyes. I saw some of that hockey stick growth since he's been in seven-figure flipping. I know he's the real, real deal, and you can do it too. You just have to get out there and get going, right? So that's the whole point of the show. The entire reason I do this show is to help you understand what it takes. And what it takes is getting out there and just starting. So guys, if you want that business, if you want that lifestyle, if you want to leave your day job, if you want to just build something that lasts and, and grows and gives your family more of what you want them to have, then you have to get out there and just start. Get out there and just start. Make today awesome. Today's the first day. Make it today. All right, go for it. We'll see you next time.